Well, anyway, welcome to the lecture on legal methodology and apologetics. My name is Kevin Lewis. I'm a professor of theology and law at Biola University in the Master of Arts Christian Apologetics program. And uh, my areas of uh, research and expertise. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a theologian. I'm a, this, the, lo, the resident systematic theologian in the apologetics department. And then uh, my specialty areas then go from heresies and elanctic theology, meaning refuting error doctrinally, and then uh, cults uh, of Christianity, uh, then demonology and the occult, and then my whole other area of study is a uh, uh, is an area of church-state studies, civil government, law, uh, and so I do uh, I do courses on uh, literally a theology of church and state, how First Amendment issues. Uh, I do all sorts of things. So you can see how it descends from theology, heretics, cults, demons, and lawyers. So it just sort of descends down the uh, the line there. And I am a lawyer too, by the way. So we'll uh, you don't don't hold that against me in the process, but. One thing that uh, drove me to not only to go into law school, because I'd been teaching theology for a decade, uh, but I already had all, always had an interest in law and justice and also in the process of legal reasoning and how that might work, for how we can use that to advance Christ's causes in the world. And as you know, you know lawyers often have a bad reputation, uh, but the fact is that lawyers have power and this is why, look, a, a good lawyer can help you a lot, a bad lawyer will hurt you a lot. Uh, and that's the, that's the reality because the, the issues are at stake. And that's why there are a lot of good lawyer jokes. Like, do you all know the difference between God and a federal judge? Yeah, the answer is God knows he's not a federal judge. So that's the, uh, yeah, so there's the, uh, there's the essential distinction between those two. What I want to do today is actually a very short version of a course I teach called Legal Evidence and Apologetics. And what this is as a technique is important to understand. It's not to replace epistemology. It's not to replace logic. It's not to replace uh, rhetoric or, or anything else that can help us convince somebody of an idea. It is simply one more tool that you have in your arsenal on how to convince people of things. And I, I like legal reasoning for a number of reasons. Uh, and if you think about its relationship to apologetics, actually that lawyers and apologists have a lot in common. Why? Because both are in the business of proving things. Because uh, that's what you do day in and day out as a lawyer is, is advocate for a position, but not only to assert it, you need to prove it. Uh, and prove it to the requisite degree of certainty required for what's at stake. And the benefit of using legal principles and legal reasoning is, is this, because in, in philosophy and theology, you know, there are debates that have gone on for years, and there are people who have had their hand on their chin so long, it's, you know, it's fused there. Uh, they can't get away from, from, from thinking about it. Lawyers actually have to come to conclusions at some point. Now, you can't have a 50-year case going on to, to have an ongoing debate. Eventually, you have to solve the issue, and this is why it's a practical uh, tool for you to have under your belt because it gives you real life principles on how to decide real issues in real ways. And the fact is, every single day in this country and around the world, <laughs> legal principles are used uh, where in, in civil cases where literally billions of dollars are, are transferred, one to a trillions of dollars are transferred, I mean, because of, of cases that are decided. 
life and liberty are decided every day on these principles. So this is why when we think about those kinds of important issues, well, guess what? It's important to understand this to prove uh, the truth of religion generally, but most importantly, because his Christianity is an historical religion which makes historical claims. The fact is, is that it can be used to prove the truth of Christianity. In fact, we'd invite every other religion to submit itself to the rigorous proofs and tests uh, that you'd be subject to in a court of law. So, but too many of them, because they are based in mythology, because they're not grounded in history, they can't submit themselves to this kind of test. So we actually have an advantage. Uh, another benefit of this kind of thinking is simply this. If I said something to you like uh, cognitivism or foundationalism, now some of you, if you're apologetics junkies, you're going, yeah, right? You know, uh, but the, the reality is, is the other 99.99% of the population and is actually from Earth, okay? Uh, the fact is they have no idea what you're talking about, but if you say evidence, if you say you know, presumption or something like that, these are terms people are already familiar with. And so if you want to have a conversation with someone about proving things, guess what? You've already got a, a hook into someone because, yeah, I understand this. I saw, you know, Matlock or I saw, you know, pick your favorite, uh, you know, uh, crime drama on TV, and even though it doesn't as much represent reality in the legal system, uh, they will be have some familiarity with us. By the way, probably one of my favorite uh, movies, barring the sort of explicit language, is My Cousin Vinny. Uh, so you want to see how the legal system works. It's actually pretty good, and the assignment I gave for the students in this course is after I taught them all the legal procedures, uh, rules of evidence, trial tactics, and legal reasoning, what they had to do is do a court visitation. If they can't do that, they had to, you watch the uh, hearing on a couple of movies. So a couple of my students did My Cousin Vinny and you know, it was civil action and you know, basically t analyze what's going on in the courtroom there with respect to the presentation of proofs. So that is uh, sort of an introductory notion here to dealing with the subject. So what I'm going to do is give you a brief overview and then what I'll do is I'll open it up to questions for you because uh, the fact is you'll have a lot of questions. Uh, I use this stuff every day because I not only am I you know, a theologian, but I'm also a practicing attorney. I, I litigate First Amendment cases. I'm actually an affiliate attorney with the Pacific Justice Institute. And uh, so I, I work in both worlds all the time. I have to come out of the legal world every once in a while to feel clean again. And then I have to go back <laughs> and, uh, and do that. So, Here's, here's the, here's, to raise the issue, here's, here's the problem. If you have any idea what's going on in the society, you know that we have a problem of skepticism ruling the culture in the academy. And what is skepticism in a nutshell? Skepticism says that absolute certainty is required for knowledge. And the reality is that very few things in existence in this life will ever be proved with quote unquote absolute certainty. Uh, nobody works on that level. Nobody works on that basis in real life. It is a false criterion to give for knowledge and truth to hold people to skepticism because the fact is the skeptics can't pass their own test that skepticism can be proved with absolute certainty. So they should doubt their skepticism. Uh, so what are the things you can know that are really 
absolutely certain. And triangles have three sides. You know, unicorns have one horn. Uh, they're called you know, tautologies or axioms, things that are true by definition. They can't be falsified because they're true by definition. And there are very few things in life that work on that level and on that basis. Everything else deals with levels or degrees of certainty, and then they have, you have different ways to rely on those issues at the different levels of certainty. Also, so, so that's the one problem, and again, this, I just can't give you a whole refutation of skepticism here, but that is really what the problem is. If people are presuming 100% certainty, for example, can you ever get a conviction in a criminal case if it requires 100% certainty? Because what does a skeptic do? Skeptic says, I only have to come up with a mere logical possibility that you might be wrong, therefore you can't be certain, therefore you don't have knowledge, therefore you can't rely on it. So you have to sit there and suspend an animation your whole life not knowing anything. And this is why you see this in the courts all the time. The juries have been con convinced that you know, the skeptic standard is the, uh, uh, is the standard to use and they won't convict anybody. Uh, and you get hung juries. And all you need you know, for a criminal case is one person with that standard and they're gone. You got a hung jury and you're not gonna do it. You have to go waste uh, time and judicial uh, resources to retry the case if you're gonna do it at all. So uh, what we are going to work on, which is in epistemology, the notion of a, uh, the idea that you might be wrong is the idea of an epistemic might be wrong. That in other words, I got a presumption that I'm right and that you have to give me good reasons to show that I'm wrong. We're gonna talk about burden of proof issues. We're gonna talk about all, all sorts of other ideas, but I wanna show you the crossovers between legal epistemology or legal method and sort of classic epistemology as well. So the reality is, is just to summarize here, we, nobody works on a skeptic standard and it shouldn't be expected. And you wanna point out that skepticism doesn't even meet its own test, okay? Uh, and when a skeptic says you have to be 100% certain about truth, that's like saying all English sentences are less than three words long, okay? Uh, do you see the problem with that? Okay, yeah, because it's a self-refuting statement. Uh, skepticism doesn't meet its own standard for 100% accuracy or truth or certainty and so forth. Now, to move on here, uh, let me give you a couple of tools to help you think about this. And the first one I want to talk about is, uh, first of all, what's the goal of litigation? What, have you even identified the issue under consideration? Because if you're going to debate something on whether or not something's true, know what you're talking about. What are we talking about here? Now, so defining the issue is absolutely necessary if you're going to begin to adduce evidence and argument to support that idea. And so the idea of defining an issue, it can be broad or it can be narrow. For example, uh, if someone went into the court and said, that guy did something wrong, what does that mean, okay? You know, instead, you can say, that guy committed aggravated battery against me. All right, now we've narrowed it down to, you need to prove these elements, okay? Uh, moving that on to, to Christianity, uh, see, how would you prove, how would you define an issue in Christianity on that basis? It'd be something like, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Okay, that would be the issue. And then when you get into legal reasoning, well, there's the issue, so now how do you deal with it? Classic law school and, and legal reasoning is FIRAC or IRAC, issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. Uh, and then you move on to the next issue. 
So, uh, so that's number one, is identify the issue properly. And then as soon as you have the issue defined, there are going to be elements uh, for that. For example, if it's uh, burglary, uh, classic common law burglary, as a person uh, in, in, in enters, breaking and entering of a dwelling at night with the intent to commit a felony therein. There's the elements, okay? What, and then you get to the burden or the standard or level of proof that you need and the burden of persuasion. Each element has to be proved uh, to that uh, level of persuasion. And if you do, then at that point, you, if you have the burden of doing that, then the burden shifts to the opposition of the defense to, to give a rebuttal at that point. So we'll go through some of the methods for that, but, but you see how that's going to work. So the question is going to be, if we say Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what elements would be included in that kind of a statement? You'd have to break it down. Well, it means that Jesus was truly human. And what is, okay, so we validate that. It means that we know what life is. It means that we know what death is. It know, it, we know that what it means to actually come back to life after being dead. Well, what does dead mean? Does dead mean uh, you know, the same way as someone's out for five minutes in an emergency room, uh, in other words, clinical death, or do we mean biological death, where someone is actually finally and permanently dead and can't be resuscitated again by any reasonable means or any way that we know. See, that's how you would define the issue, because if you don't do this up front, you're talking past each other. You will never settle an issue with anyone unless you clearly define it in the first place. Uh, and so that's my, my first piece of advice. Um, of course, there's another one here, too, that remember, in these discussions, we tend to almost have a Pollyanna view of how our apologetics are, are going to affect people. Uh, we, we, it's, it is a false view of religion, particularly Christianity, that people are basically good and they love and want truth, and they're all going to sit there and be willing to hear good arguments for their views. You know, that just, the Bible talks about original sin, and the fact is, look, people are corrupt, they're guilty, they hate God in their hearts, they don't want to know. Uh, so, and there you get into, you know, we don't want to get into presuppositionalism and evidentialism as apologetic methods at this point, but the fact is apologetics can get you so far, but we, we you can't rule out, you must include the role of the Holy Spirit. You must include, you know, for conviction, the use of scripture. Uh, so we're, we're, so I want to make this clear because those are whole other lectures where we can talk about these other elements involved. Here, we're talking about if someone's going to get to saving faith, they've got knowledge, assent, and trust as elements they have to satisfy. With their intellect, they have to be able to understand a proposition and assent that it's true. With the will, they're going to have to be able to commit to it. And that's where you get into the debates in the history of Christianity, how much is the will in bondage? Uh, in other words, so you, you can know something's true but not want to commit to it for other reasons. And also, in fact, uh, James 2.19 says, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe that and tremble. So it's not enough to know something is true. You have to desire it. You have to want it, and you have to make a commitment to it. So, uh, so that's why you know uh, Bill Craig gave last night read an email about you know and as an illustration of arguing people in the kingdom of God. The fact is, is yes, those arguments can be used to get to knowledge and assent, but trust, you know, that's a whole other issue. And but you know that's for uh, the evangelism class, and so. When you think about these things and litigation tactics and trial tactics and how you do this, you've got to remember sometimes the issue isn't necessarily to convince the other side because if they've shown that they're not listening, sometimes it's got to be, you know, sometimes the best thing is to silence the other side. You know, how much, how much damage is done 
by false prophets going out into the world, and we have people getting involved in atheism, bad philosophy, cults of Christianity, heresies. They learn bad arguments for views, and then you've got to go undo them later. And so that's why sometimes you know, the best thing to do uh, by illustration is to build the fence at the top of the cliff to prevent people from falling off rather than building a hospital at the bottom of a cliff uh, to take care of the people who fall off. And it's both and. There are a lot of people that fall off the cliff, but at the same time, you know, I don't know about you, but are you going to teach all your kids heresies and then give them the, you know, well, you guys decide on your own now, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't do that. So. That's why sometimes just the brute force tactics come in and you're sitting across the other side and you do the say, so you want to make this the most litigated case in the history of litigation? And you make googly eyes at them, huh? You know, so, well, I don't know. So, you know, so they don't bring it forth. Just like, you know, a defamation issue. Look, the fact is, once you're defamed, most people aren't going to hear the retraction. And so what do you want to try and do? Prevent it from getting out in the first place. So there are a lot of principles involved here that will help us advance the cause of Christ. And part of what we do as apologists is, you know, that's one of the tactics is how do you prevent something from defaming truth, in effect, the, the, the concept of defamation, and uh, not have to pick up the pieces afterwards. Now, some procedural issues here. Um, how many of you have heard of Pascal's Wager? Okay, yeah, some of you have. How you have never heard of it? Okay. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, that's the, I don't know, are you here? Oh, right hand, left hand. Okay, so, yeah, the idea of Pascal's wager is simply, it's sort of this scenario of win-win, win-lose. If, uh, if you believe in Christianity, what's the worst? You know, well, you live a good life, but if you're wrong, you know, you go off into oblivion, but you've lived a good life. You know, if you're a skeptic and you don't believe in Christianity, uh, then uh, the fact is you live a bad life and then you go off into hell anyway. So it's just better off if you're going to wager, an educated wager, it's better to wager for Christianity. Now let me give you a, another way that this is dealt with in the legal world. Uh, those of you who deal with tort law or understand tort law, and a tort is not a cake, okay, in law. Uh, torts are uh, the idea of civil wrongs. Their uh, tort is means the word means twist, okay? So that would be in the civil side of assault and battery and false imprisonment uh, and things like that. But also the idea is in 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 negligence cases, all right? Now negligence and you've heard this growing up and everybody's well, it doesn't matter because I didn't do it intentionally. And we've heard something like that. Say, well, yeah, maybe it doesn't matter that you have a greater degree of liability. Intentional torts carry with it a, a greater degree of liability than negligence. But you can fail to do a duty and still be liable for the damage you cause. So when you think about a negligence case, the, the elements are going to be a duty that you had to, to do something. You breached the duty. Okay? You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Then your breach of duty actually caused somebody's harm, okay? And then proximate cause, which nobody knows why they call it proximate, but that's just what they call it in law, meant it's foreseeable that this, what you did is foreseeable that harm would come from it. And after that, that there really are damages. If you have no damages, you have no case. So, this, so that's a basic negligence case. Well, here's one way that people come up with the notion of duty. And you can use this to show the duty of intellectual inquiry. It's, it's a nice crossover into intellectual questions and cognitive questions. 
The formula is PGB, okay? The probability of a harm times the gravity of a harm equals the burden someone has to make something safe, okay? And that's a great formula if you, if you think about it. And if, think about the, the probability, probability times the gravity. Well, probability of harm, let's say you're dealing with uh, a, uh, Electric company has you know 50,000 volt transfer station, and you know has a little door on it. You can open it up and stick your finger in it. Okay, and now if someone sticks their finger in 50,000 volts, and I don't want to get to the amperage issues and everything, but it's going to kill you. Okay, <laughs> you know, what? That's the gravity of it. It's huge, but what's the probability at that point? Well, that's going to change now. It's right in the middle of a neighborhood where there's hundreds of little kids playing and it constantly makes this buzzing noise. Bzz, bzz, and all the kids are constantly around and going, hey, what's, what's that buzzing noise? Now we know the nature of kids, we know all these other things, and so we, we call that you know, an attractive nuisance. Okay? And so the idea is, look, you know, that's attracting these things. So huge gravity of harm probability that the, you know, so, some kid is going gonna, is gonna to touch it. So what's the duty to make it safe? Way up there. You've got a big burden. So you, you put three fences around it. You, know, you do all sorts of other things that you ensure that you know, kids can't get to that and, and get hurt. Now, so, and of course, we can go through the scenario on something that might be high gravity but low probability. Okay? Uh, you know, for example, you know, pr the gravity if a, uh, I know, a moon-sized meteor you know, or something hits the Earth, you know, okay, you know, extinction, right? Uh, what's the probability at this point? Mm, nothing. You know, so nobody is going to build bunkers on Saturn or something or Mars you know, because there, there's no burden to do anything about it. So that's how that formula is going to work back and forth. And it's, it's fact-specific for every issue that you're going to look at. Now, when you translate that into something similar to Pascal's wager, this is important because what do you want to do? You want to get people to think about the Christian religion and its truth claims. So you can use this to say, for example, probability times the gravity equals the burden. And so you've got PGB, okay? Now, Start with the gravity issue. Um, how important is it? Let's see. Eternal heaven, eternal hell. It doesn't get more grave or important than that. Okay? Let's see. Eternal bliss and happiness and perfection with God forever and ever and ever and ever. And you know, the song goes, right? Uh, so th that, that's one. So it's infinite blessing or infinite damnation. This is the most important issue anyone will ever face in their entire existence in life. Okay? So gravity, way up there. Okay, way up there. Now you get into probability. Okay? The probability issue. And this is where it's interesting where we get into what are called burdens of proof and persuasion here. Now as a general rule, a person who makes an assertion or claims something you carry the burden of proof and, and the burden of persuasion to prove your case or to prove what you're, you're, you're asserting. Okay? So that shifts to you. But if someone else is making the case, they carry the burden. So if an atheist asserts there is no God, they actually carry the burden to prove there's no God. Okay? Now if we're saying there is a God, then we carry the burden of proof and the burden of persuasion to give evidences that what? 
that there is a God and that we've clearly defined the issue. Well, what does God mean? Well, there's a personal powerful being that caused the universe to come into existence a finite amount of time ago and, and so forth. You, you define what that means. Now, so, so that's number one, who's making the claim and what does it mean to go forward with evidence? Now, the next area here, we want to get into levels of certainty because that's when we get into legal standards that are helpful for people to understand, right? So we've got gravity, and uh, gravity here, you know, symbolized here by all if no, it's infinity gravity, okay? And probability now, now you, you think about this, now all of you apologetics junkies that are here, right? Uh, you think about all the evidence and argument that we can give that Jesus Christ really lived that he really taught what he taught, that he rose from the dead, that all of this. And you look at the, what Christianity has produced you know, throughout the two millennia it's been around. The fact is, is that look, it's, it's just not even debatable that this is, this is good stuff when it's done right. Now the fact is there's lots of heresies, there's lots of cults, there's lots of pseudo versions, there's lots of tares in the wheat field, you know, and so forth. We're talking about the real stuff here, you know, not the fake stuff. So when we get to this issue now, the probability, let's go through that list of probability, okay? Now, number one, I already said that there are very few things that will ever reach the level of absolute certainty, and it's not required for belief, okay? And that's just impossible. Okay, so we move to the next one, in which I'll just say one more thing on that. If you watch TV shows like Matlock, okay, yeah, he's like, yeah, Your Honor, I'm going to prove it beyond all doubt. No, you're not. Okay, it's just, it's, it doesn't work that way. Okay, what you need to do is prove it, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt or something like that. The, uh, and by the way, I'm going to make this handout available on my website. Uh, my faculty website at Biola is theolaw.org, T-H-E-O-L-A-W.org. I also run a, a, a institute called the Institute for Theology and Law at itlnet.org. Uh, I'm rebuilding the website now, but eventually that'll have a ton of materials there for you to download as well. Uh, so, so that you're trying to take notes, I'm gonna actually put this, put this outline up there uh, so you can download it. So not absolute certainty. Well, what's the next level of certainty? Because not 100%. The next level is commonly called what's psychological or intuitive certainty. Uh, and psychological or intuitive certainty ultimately means that while theoretically it's possible to doubt, um, that you have no meaningful doubt and about any state of affairs. And what does that mean? Uh, well, does anyone really doubt the sun's gonna rise tomorrow? Or that gravity is gonna be in effect in the next five seconds? I say, say you're not holding onto your chairs, you know, grabbing the wall or something. Uh, the fact is, is that's not axiomatic. The fact is, is that, but, but nobody even thinks about that kind of stuff anymore. See, that's a psychological or intuitive certainty that it's not 100%, but you know what? It is so verified, it is so certain that you don't even have to think about it anymore, okay? And so that's a level you can get to for certain propositions and certain ideas in life as well. Uh, next, go down a little bit. Now this is the standard in, in, in criminal cases, the idea is beyond a reasonable doubt, okay? And the problem is, is that too many uh, defense attorneys want to make beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond all doubt, you know, so they can get their clients acquitted. And we, you see this in a lot of the you know, publicized TV cases on that, the, the Menendez case and some of the other things. You go back and read that. They were trying to, the defense was trying to actually, you know, shove an absolute certainty standard, and they got a couple of the jurors to, to buy into that. Uh, so that's, that's how you do it. But, but that's not the proper standard. The proper standard 
is beyond a reasonable doubt, means the trier of fact is fully satisfied, entirely convinced, or satisfied to a moral certainty that the fact is true. And so it's a high, one of the highest levels of conviction and, and, and certainty that a thing is true. Now the idea here is that you still have to think about it, but what you've done is you've really exhausted all the counter-arguments and that you are confident that, you know what, I can go forward as a person of moral character knowing that I did my duty, that I didn't you know, unjustly put someone in jail or take their life or take their property or, or you know, to that. So it's, a, it, it's one of the highest levels. And remember, each element of the case needs to be proven to that level, not just if it's got eight elements to, the, you know, to, a, to a crime, you only prove seven beyond a reasonable doubt, defendant's acquitted. Okay. So they're gone. So remember, it's each element of the case or that person's still free. They still have their liberty. They still have their full place in society. So this is, uh, uh, is something to think about. But you know what? Is that the standard that someone has to get to before they commit to Christianity? Why? Why would you have to do that? There's lots of things you believe. Like, you know, that 7-Eleven is on the corner and they have coffee. Do you need to have a, you know, uh, do you need to have a uh, beyond a reasonable doubt certainty to go out? Uh, do you, you know, you're not, some truck isn't going to run on the sidewalk and kill you. Do you need beyond a reasonable doubt? No. Most, again, most things in life don't operate on that level either. It's only for the fact that if you're going to do a criminal conviction and take someone's life or liberty away, that's the level you have to achieve. Now, some critics of Christianity say things like, well, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence or something like that. Some of you have heard, I know you've heard something like that before. When the fact is, is no. What, what do you mean? I'm, uh, what do you mean extraordinary evidence? See, that doesn't even make sense. You know, it, look, physical evidence. Look, if, if Bigfoot's real, it's not. It's not going to be extraordinary evidence. You find a Bigfoot. You know, you drag. If you find a Bigfoot corpse, you drag him in. You know, they do DNA testing. It's the same evidence you do on any creature. Uh, so it's not extraordinary evidence. Uh, same thing with uh, any other historical claim. What are the current historical standards? Which you might want to understand. What is legal methodology? It's a historical methodology. It, it, you're doing mini history when you're in a court because what are you trying to prove? You're trying to prove that certain events occurred. You're trying to prove a little snapshot of history. Who said what, where it happened, and so forth. Now from there, you bring in the moral standards and the legal standards of the culture and apply it to the facts. But the evidence here is simply to bring in whether or not this thing happened, who said what. And that's going to include testimonial evidence, physical evidence, direct evidence, circumstantial evidence. And by the way, most everything is proved on circumstantial evidence. The idea that somehow circumstantial evidence is bad. Uh, no, circumstantial evidence is just fine. Uh, you know, if you see a, a footprint in the snow, you, you, you can reasonably deduce from that that something made the footprint. Okay, something with a foot made the footprint. Yeah. And uh, so forth. So that's circumstantial evidence. You see someone running out of a building, you know, waving a gun, saying, "I killed him! I killed him! I hated him!" You know, you didn't actually see him shoot him, but you found a body afterwards. You found out the gun he had in his possession had uh, is the same caliber as the what the person was shot with. That's circumstantial evidence. But you know what? That's that's good evidence. So, so that's why you know don't believe everything you hear on TV. Uh, so, so, so when we get to this and we think about. 
the level of persuasion kinds of issues. Again, you, we don't need beyond a reasonable doubt. Now in between, you've got what's called clear and convincing evidence, which is a, a standard used in a couple areas of law. Uh, you know, things like probate, wills and trust. You know, did uh, Uncle Bob really change his will at the last minute and give it all to Fido, okay? Uh, if you're gonna admit that to probate court, it's, you don't, it doesn't require beyond a reasonable doubt, but it requires a little bit more than the clear and convincing standard. I'm not gonna spend any more time on that, only to say that, you know, there's a hierarchy of levels of certainty that are gonna be involved. Now. What I want to get to is, is the civil standard because this is important and it fits into our, our duty of intellectual inquiry uh, idea. And this is the notion of preponderance of the evidence. Okay? What is preponderance of the evidence? And this is the civil standard. It is literally, you have the scales of justice. If it barely tips, if it's 50.00001%, you win. Okay, and they're 49 point, you know, whatever, 9999 over there, they lose, you win. You know, they say trillions of dollars are won and lost every day on this in the courts, uh, as far as the judgments go. So, so that's the, uh, uh, the notion here. So here's the point, at what point should you commit to something as true? If it's reached, is it simply more likely than not? And guess what? There's all sorts of things that you commit to on that basis. Look, it's more likely than not that the church you attend is a good church. You know, do you have to be beyond a reasonable doubt? No. Uh, so there's all sorts of things every single day you commit to on that. So when you get to when should someone finally make a commitment to Jesus Christ, the fact is, look, I've really weighed all the evidence and I just found it's more likely than not that Christianity is true and the other things are false, okay? Now, what's important here though is, so therefore, you become a Christian and you go in to the pastor's office, you get your lobotomy and you never think again, right? <laughs> so, you know, yeah, maybe there are some uh, sections of Christianity that want you to believe that, but no. The legal process actually includes what? All sorts of, you know, appeals. I think they got it wrong. So guess what, you can appeal it and we review whether or not that's true. Uh, then if, they, if, if that doesn't work, right, you know, for your first uh, appeal of mandate, which is a review area, you go to the Supreme Court. Well, we need to review it again. Uh, and then, and even if that doesn't work, now you have your extraordinary writs like habeas corpus. We review it again. So this doesn't mean turn off your mind. The fact is the Bible is clear to be convinced all the time, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It is a loving God with all your mind is necessary for salvation and sanctification. It's a life of constantly growing and constantly confronting truth and lies in your life. When you get saved in Christianity, what do you get? You get a helm of salvation, a diaper, and a bottle of milk. Okay, uh, that's it. And God doesn't hit the reformat button on the human mind. So what do you need to do even though you're positionally in Christ? You're justified. You are adopted as a child of God. You have a new nature regenerated. God didn't erase, you know, it, basically reformat your mind, get rid of Microsoft Satan 6.66, and then install, you know, Microsoft God 7.77, and now everything's fine. You have no sinful inclinations. You know everything you're supposed to do. You're, you're wise as, you know, wise as can be. No, it's a struggle. It's, it's a task. It's a life of the mind. 
not, you had to repent to become a Christian, you got to repent every day because repent means to change your mind. There's lots of things that we still believe that are wrong and you got to love the truth enough to seek it out. And that's our admonition because you will not grow as a Christian in any way besides trying to convince unbelievers whether Christianity is true or whether within the church for apologetics when people are being tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. Uh, the fact is those are the, some big things, but you know, what do you do in a bioethics situation where, you know, uh, do you pull the plug or not? That takes some very important ethical thought. You don't turn your mind off uh, making these important things because what are we saved unto? Righteousness, holiness. And you've got to learn how to be holy. So that's why it's a life of the mind all the time if you're going to live a life pleasing to God, but most importantly, a joyful and happy life. Holiness brings joy. Sin brings misery. Uh, and that's what we need to have as a goal. So uh, with that, so we think about the, the standard the fact is, most of the world commits to an idea if it's simply more likely than not. And it doesn't mean turn your mind off. In fact, quite the opposite. In the history of Christianity, uh, Christians are the ones who have one of the most robust intellectual traditions ever. Uh, so this is why we need to be cautious that just because you know, some modern uh, folks don't like the idea of you know, committing to ideas, well, guess what? You know, they're in the minority in the history of Christianity. That's why I encourage you, and that's why you're here at a conference like this. Guess what? Reclaim our intellectual tradition because guess what? We always win uh, because it's true. Truth always wins. So you do not have to be afraid to test this stuff. So that's preponderance of the evidence. Now here's the important thing. Now, now we get into, what if I'm less than certain about it? See, let's say you're at preponderance of the evidence for your probability standard here, okay? 50%, heaven and hell. I'm there, man. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm becoming a Christian, and I'm, and I'm gonna be open to counter arguments and further growth and all of these things, as we should. What happens now if we're at less than 50%? See, this is what's important, too, because when you think about this duty, okay, you think about um, the, the concepts of probable cause and reasonable suspicion in criminal law. Okay, now, these are defined in various ways, but, for example, reasonable suspicion would probably be the lowest area of certainty you can have about something in the area of criminal law. And this is defined as common sense conclusions upon which people are entitled to rely. Uh, it requires facts or circumstances that get rise to more than bare, imaginary, or purely conjectural suspicion. Now, in reality, if you ever went into court and put percentages of belief, like, well, if you're 90% certain, you know, mistrial, they, they'd throw it out. So you really can't put numbers to this, but if you, just for the sake of argument, what would absolute certainty be? 100%. You know, what would, you know, psychological, intuitive certainty be? Well, 90%. You know, what would, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't know, 75, 80, somewhere there. Clear and convincing, maybe 60, 65%. Preponderance is that 50.01% level. All right, so now we go below the line, and you're at reasonable suspicion, probable cause. Well, this is, what, 20% 20, 20 certain of something? But the point is you have a reasonable suspicion. You know, you see 
a, a certain area, known gang members that have certain gang markers, paraphernalia. It's 3 a.m. You know, you see them. You know, you know, looking around a building. You know, they're sort of you know doing these sort of furtive, you know, sneaky looks around. Uh, you know, then when you uh, you pull up as a cop car, they run. Okay. Now, does that mean they're convicted of a crime? No. Do you have a reasonable suspicion that a crime might be in progress? Yeah, that's, and that justifies in law what's called a Terry stop, okay? Is that, you know, that's not an arrest. That's just a temporary detention to get more evidence, okay? So you stop, it's justified to stop to get more evidence and think about it, okay? And uh, again, that's not a conviction. Uh, there's no harm that's done by it, except you're temporarily detained. Now, consider even the, the, the lowest level here of reasonable suspicion. Let's just say it's 20%. Infinite gravity, 20% chance that it's true, okay? Should you stop and take a look at further evidence? Absolutely. Who wouldn't do that? And let me give you an illustration here that'll sort of help you put this in perspective, okay? Um, if, let's say uh, I just got a, a phone call and uh, our, our good administrator here, uh, Jimmy Pran, says, Kevin, we, 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 just got a, uh, uh, we just got a call. Uh, one of your former students who really didn't like your class said he put a bomb in your room and wanted to do away with you because he got a bad grade, too, and uh, all of that. I, I'm, I'm not encouraging you to do that. Don't, don't take notes here for your professors. So, uh, and that's never happened. But let's just say that happened. And he says, yeah, we got uh, 50 pounds of C4 in the room, and it's set to go off in five minutes. And yeah, we called the, the, uh, the bomb squad and uh, you know, the police departments, and their uh, statisticians said there is a, uh, there's only a 20% chance that the call was genuine. How many of you would still be in the room? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I said, sorry, dude, your lecture ain't that good, man. I'm out of here. So, you know, so, but that's exactly right because you, you, you naturally understand gravity versus probability that it's true. And immediately you know what to do about it. Like I said, these things are fact specific the way we reason about it. And uh, so now when you think about that, how much more important is eternal conscious punishment away from God? How much more is that for which you've been seeking your whole life, pure love and joy and happiness, which is promised forever and ever uh, from a loving father who mentors you, that, that's not worth stopping to take a real serious additional look. You'd leave for the bomb, right? Let me give you another application here, then I'll stop and I'll take some questions from you because there's many, many, many more principles that I haven't got to today uh, to cover this. But think about this as a bioethics issue, okay? Because, you know, we value human life, okay? And what's important here to understand abortion and cloning and, and these kinds of issues is that uh, the academy has shifted from what's called an essentialist view of persons philosophically, where instead of looking at what they are, they've shifted to a functionalist view of personhood. And personhood is huge because if you can demonstrate by definition someone's a person, all the laws of the land apply to them. See, you can inherit property from the moment of conception because you're a person. That's one area of the law that recognizes essentialist views of personhood. But when it comes to abortion, 
well, we know that Roe v. Wade and uh, all the current law on that. Now, you know, you can decide when a person is a person based on functions or choice or anything else. So getting actually one area of law is to have personhood amendments to the Constitution. You want real protection, give them legal personhood standing. And that will take care of the issue. Because then all the current laws that apply to persons will apply to them. Guess what? You can't murder persons. You can't rape persons. You can't take their body parts, you know, and, and use them against their will. Uh, you can't take people's minor children, you know, from their parents and use them for experiments. So all you need to do is grant personhood. But anyway, but that, that goes to a more theological, philosophical view of what is a person. And we've got to shift back to what's called essentialist views of personhood. Now, but here's a scenario uh, on dealing with, for example, the abortion question. Um, the opponents of life will talk about how you're dealing with a potential human person, okay? When the reality is, no, you're potentially dealing with a human person as far as what level of certainty you're dealing with. Now, let me give you an illustration here that I think, I've, I've used this many, 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 many times, and I've never had a, a, a pro-choice advocate really ever give me a good counterexample for this, because we inherently know the value of human life, and we inherently know how we're supposed to react when we're potentially dealing with human life, okay? Now, Think about this scenario. Let's say that I am a demolitions expert and I've been hired to blow up a building. Okay, you've seen this kind of stuff, the building falling in on each other. And so now I, I hire my crew, they wire the building, it's all ready to go. And so now they, they, they wire the building and you're just about ready to push the button, you know, to blow up the building. And all of a sudden your foreman runs up and says, wait, 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 we just found a tricycle parked at the front of the building. And then about 30 seconds later, frantic mother runs up and says, wait, wait, have, have you seen my daughter? She was riding in this area and you know, she was riding a little tricycle and it had a little Barbie on it. And you know, you make it cute so it sounds really good, right? So, and then all of a sudden you say, yeah, but time is money here. We, 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 we gotta take care of this. We gotta get on the next job. So what happens now is you get out your attorneys and bean counters and everyone else and they say, you know what? We've decided there's only a 40% chance that the girl's in the building. Anyone gonna push the button? Blow it up? No, you'd be a moral monster if you did that. Okay, we get a different set of bean counters. We decide now there's only a 20% chance that the girl's in the building. Who would push the button? Nobody. Why? Back to this formula. Probability times the gravity equals the burden. Okay, PGB. And let, let's say there's, look, we've, we're down, there's a 1% chance she's in the building. Doesn't matter. Innocent human life, real human person, you're potentially dealing with an innocent human person. And your natural instinct, what God wrote on your hearts, and every liberal knows this too, because it's written on their heart, is that the default position is that we proceed with extreme caution on these issues. And that you would be a moral monster if you did not stop everything you're doing, disconnect the blaster, and go search every inch of the building until the girl was found, okay? And that's how you can use this kind of reasoning in all sorts of claims, everything from bioethics to you know, resurrection issues and so forth. But this is one more tool that you can use. Other things, uh, literally we've got 
you know, everything from ancient documents, rules, uh, and so forth, circumstantial evidence, res ipsa loquitur, uh, for example, in, in, tort, in, in tort law, a negligence law, if a plane falls out of the sky, you don't have to prove duty and breach. It's, uh, res ipsa loquitur means the thing speaks for itself. If, if a plane falls out of the sky, you got a presumption that somebody was negligent because that doesn't normally happen, okay? Uh, so, you know, uh, tombs aren't empty. That's not a normal thing. So you could use, uh, in, to a degree, res ipsa loquitur for that. So, so anyway, that's the, uh, that's it. That's all we have time for today. So what I want to do is, uh, yeah, I just got the thumbs up. I felt the trap door shaking here. So, so I want to stop this, and I want to give you a chance for questions now. So any questions that you have? Yes, sir. Uh, do you have a book on this or something that would help people with apologetics who want to be familiar with these arguments or these methods? Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll say this again. Um, there's, there's a number of them, uh, you know, from primers on the subject to, uh, you know, classical text. Hugo Grotius's work is one of the first uh, who did legal apologetics, uh, you know, classic legal thinker in the area. Uh, you know, he's a 17th century thinker. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery's books on the subject, uh, Law Above the Law, and all sorts of books. What I encourage you to do is, uh, again, I, I tend to do this. My, my Biola address, and I, I know I'm gonna, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get busy for this, but kevin.lewis at biola, with a B, dot edu. Uh, send me that, but keep check on my website at theolaw.org. And all my handouts are there. And so what I'll do is I'll post a bibliography for you. And check out my website at itlnet.org, the Institute for Theology and Law. There are tons of books on, on this. And also, uh, I, the course I teach on legal evidence and apologetics, uh, I actually have people read books on evidence and trial tactics. And you actually learn the methodology. And there's some good books that are written, what are called horn books that actually, they don't go into all necessarily trying to make you dive into all the weird case law, but they actually have a nice discussion of all the legal principles involved. So they're very, very, very good to understand. Yes, sir. Uh, Richard Dawkins makes the case on, on Pascal's wager that if, it only, if you're only considering Christianity, that might be valid, but there's also lots of other religions in there, too. So would the task be to, to first show evidentially or by whatever means that they're not valid, like Christianity is? Sure. And the fact is, there are great ways to do that. The question is, is you know, Rich, Richard Dawkins, I always have to remember to repeat the question or I get a demerit you know, when I go back to the office. So yeah, the, the, the question is, is that Richard Dawkins says, well, gee, if we're going to do this and Pascal's wager, should we consider other religions too? And the fact is, well, of course, but you know, okay, so let's do some basic worldview analysis. Okay, atheistic materialism. Let's start, you know, five basic precepts of a worldview. All right, let's start with ontology. Everything that exists is ateleological matter in motion. In other words, a bunch of little dust particles accidentally clump together and are chaotically bumping into each other. And why should anybody care about anything? See, at that point, have a Three Stooges kind of life, eat, drink, and beat Larry for tomorrow you die. Uh, but words like should and ought and things like that have no business in that kind of system. But people like Dawkins, can, and, you know, Christopher Hitchens, Dawkins, and so forth, they won't live by their ontology. And they're going to sit there and say things like, well, you should do this, and you ought not to do this. And who cares? That's just your particles bumping into my particles. And frankly, my particles are bigger than you particles. So you know, I don't really care. Uh, so so, you know, so much for atheism because, look, everybody knows there's good and evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's intuitive. There's no explanation for that. There's nothing normative in an a ateleological materialistic system. Pantheism, so, 
He says I'm dead if I don't stop. So let me, I'll finish. Do I got one minute left? You have about 40 seconds. 40 seconds, okay. <laughs> Pantheism is bad. Okay, let's, uh, what's the, uh, the next one here? Thank you very much. Now just think about I mean, basic stuff, worldview analysis. If everything is God, you're already God, so stop doing what you're doing. Look in the mirror and sing how great thou art, okay? But nobody believes that, okay? And why did you forget you were God? And yada, yada, yada. So the fact is, all the other worldviews are very easy to refute. So you end up with, uh, five seconds left, no, the uh, uh, classic monotheism, which frankly, Judaism is incomplete, Islam is wrong, so you end up with Orthodox Christianity, and that's really where you go with. All right, so with that, thank you very much. And, uh, Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.